find your Bible, please, uh, turn to 1 Samuel 24, and we can look at chapter 1 Samuel 24, and we can look chapter 1, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 26 as well, so those two chapters. Really, it's a delight to be able to preach tonight, I'm looking forward to it, and this is the last time we're going to get together before the holidays, starts in, in August, and then uh, probably we'll get together for a couple of weeks in just uh, at the beginning of September just to relaunch the home groups, but I'm so glad that you're here, and thank you for being here. I know it's, um, it's always uh, many other things that are trying for our time, so I really do appreciate you being here tonight. It's wonderful to have you, right? Um, I've been looking... Our brothers, and we use the example of Joseph, yeah, which is for me, it's just always an amazing, amazing story of, of how Joseph copes and what God does in him at that time and takes him to a whole process in his life. And what he ends up as is what God promised at the beginning, but the way that he got there was just not what, like he, what he expected. And today, I want to look at um, what happens when we are offended in the church by those that are leading us home group leaders, me deacons, others, how do, how do we cope with that kind of offense? Because that's, that's, that's another animal. And remember when we started, we looked at Luke chapter 17, and uh, Jesus said in verse 1, and depending on the translation, it's slightly different, but he said, it's impossible that offenses will not come to us. It's impossible. We live in a, in a, a world where it's going to happen, and so wherever you are, at work, with colleagues, sometimes, somehow, you're going to get some. How you respond to that is the most important thing. That's the reality. What we do with the offenses that come into our life determines our future. I absolutely believe that. How we handle the offenses that come into our life either determines that we'll become stronger in Christ or it means that we'll become bitter and twisted and our future will not be as bright as what it could be. And I think... Just in terms of my own life, there's certainly this is true, that when you encounter offense, you, can't, you can never remain the same. <laughs> That's absolutely true, because you either change one of two ways, and it's impossible to remain the same after you've encountered offense. And I want to just pray in all of this that God will help us to respond with His way in our hearts, so that all of us, the whole church, will live free of offense. That's really why I'm, I'm wanting to uh, preach this, and I trust it's going to be in an encouraging way. So, we looked at Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, and this, this evening we want to look at the whole thing of David's life. This seems to be ringing a little bit. Uh, is, it, uh, is it my problem? Andrew? Is that better? No? My funny shape is. There? Better? That's better. Okay. Was it, well, one of the scriptures that I find amazing is Joseph, even in, in, in his life, when he's talking about what God has done in his life, he says this, it says, he says to his brothers right there, it's not you who sent, sent me here, it was God. Don't you find that incredible? I mean, he recognizes what his brothers had done, but he knew overwhelmingly that God's hand was on his life, and God ultimately is sovereign and allows things to happen to us, even when we don't understand that. And I think that once we come to grips with that, that God allows things, it, it means there's 
an incredible freedom comes into your life. It's a liberty. You're not always second-guessing God. Why this? You know, what have I done? Bring this on my life. Ultimately, God has this in the palm of his hand and he allows all things so that he can train us for the, the task that he's called us to ultimately at the end of the day. So, like I said, it's one thing to receive uh, unfair treatment from a brother, but it's another to receive unfair treatment in the church from someone you look to as a father or someone that you look to as a leader. And I think that's a different kind of thing we have to look at. And um, I said in the first session that sometimes when we have high expectations of people, then we can, get, we can be offended to that measure of the, 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 the strength of our offense. Uh, why? Because we expect leaders to nurture us, we expect them to father us, we expect them to help us grow into the kind of people that God intends us to be. And so when hurt comes, that's even more difficult. But when I look at the life of David, it's an amazing story of this man learning to cope with offense from someone who was a leader in his life. And uh, just, to re- look, just as I did last week, we looked at the life of Joseph, I'm just going to chat through the life of David. So, can you imagine when Samuel comes and he anoints this young teenage boy? Uh, what thoughts must have been going through David's mind? And at that moment when Samuel anointed him, he hadn't even met Saul, but from that very moment that David anointed him, uh, that Samuel anointed him and said, you will be the next king of Israel, Samuel's, Saul's life and David's life were inexorably linked. Their destinies were intertwined from that moment and he had never clapped eyes on Saul, never met the man. And For me, that's an amazing thing. When God has got something for us and he puts his hand on our lives and he says, I've got this for you to do, we don't even know what the future is going to hold and in the calling even, our lives begin to be linked with people that we haven't even yet met. Isn't that an amazing thing? That God so loves us that he's committed to us that much. So David is absolutely pursued by God and it's like God is pursuing him and chasing him. And, and, he, and Samuel looks through all the obvious candidates, all the brothers. And you know the story well. He goes through all the brothers and here's David out in the field, ignored. Can you imagine what he must have felt like in terms of his own dad, that his own father so overlooked him that he left him out in the field? See, so, now I don't have any other kids. Well, actually he did. He had one more son who was looking after his sheep and he forgot about him. So the, can you imagine those thoughts that are running down, that are running through his head as the oil is being poured over him? But the time passes by, and as you know, nothing happens, not for a long time. Saul, in the meantime, if you read the story, is being oppressed. It says that demonic oppression comes upon him, and uh, he wants to f- seek relief from that. And s- some of his aides say there's this amazing young guy called David who can play the harp. He's a great musician. And why don't you invite him to come and play for you? and um, he'll relieve this oppression. And so that's what happens. David is invited, and he ministers to Saul musically. It's wonderful power in music. You know that? How many of you don't just find your souls are fed by music? I think it's a wonderful thing. Often when I need some encouragement, I read, obviously read the scripture, but sometimes I just put on some music that ministers to me. I feel encouraged. Your soul gets encouraged. So there's this amazing breakthrough that comes uh, as David plays for Saul, and maybe David thought at that time, gee, you know, God's starting to open the way for me here. I've got access to, to the king. Looks like it's what was prophesied, starting to work out. But we know later on there's a war with the Philistines and um, they're fighting the Israelites. David's asked again by his father to go and send supplies to his brothers. 
and he arrives and finds the whole of the army cowering in fear of Goliath. And he says to his brothers, well, who's this uncircumcised Philistine anyway? And now his brothers get angry with him. It's familiar, isn't it? It's like the same thing when Joseph speaks. His brothers get angry. <laughs> and so now he says, well, what's your guy's problem? I mean, this guy's uncircumcised. Let's take him on and uh, makes them very angry. So then he goes, he goes to directly to Saul and he says, no, I'll do it. I'll take him on. I'll, I'll take on Goliath. And he says, uh, who's this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the, the, the armies of the, Almighty, of the Almighty God? And in the process of him asking, he says, well, what's gonna ha- what, what will you do for the guy that actually slays Goliath? And uh, the aides around Saul say, well, if you kill this Goliath, uh, Michael, Michael, sorry, not Michael, Michael, daughter of Saul will be yours. So, I mean, David must have thought that's a great idea. Uh, defeat, defeat Goliath, and now I've got act, this means I'm going to marry the king's daughter. So he takes, takes Goliath on, as you know, and uh, wins, defeats Goliath, and now he's got access right into the palace. So now he marries Saul's daughter, gets access into the palace, he's eating at the king's table, and it says that he becomes the armor bearer to Saul, and he strikes up this incredible friendship with Joseph, which is. Uh, Oh, sorry, Jonathan. Jonathan, which is Saul's, one of Saul's sons, is eating at the king's table. It's like he's right in the hub of where things are going to happen. And he must have been pinching himself saying, this is incredible. All those things that God prophesied, I'm living in the dream. It's about, here it is. I'm in the fullness of it. I'm right in God's plan for my life. That's a cool feeling when you, when you know that you are just walking in the plan that God has for you. But you know what happens. It's never as simple as that. Because now they fight, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines again. What happens? The people are singing in the street when the army's coming back and they say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David, he's slain tens of thousands. What happens? Saul is just like, there's a little thing that gets into his heart right there and then, and he starts to be so jealous of this young man. This young man's going to take his kingdom. So it says, if you read the narrative, it says, twice. When Saul is under this demonic oppression, after that, David is ministering to him, doing his best with all the gifts that God has given him to help this man. And it says David uh, is almost pinned to the wall because Saul takes the javelin and tries to kill him twice. How's that? I mean, you're just doing what you've been asked to do, trying to help the guy, and then he tries to kill you with the javelin. There's this unbelievable demonic thing that begins to stir in Saul's life. And after the second time, David does what any normal person would do. He, hits, he hightails it out of there. He runs for his life. Okay? He's been living in the royal palace. He's been living with this amazing sense of privilege. For the next 14 years, 14 years, he is in the desert. He's in caves. He's fleeing from his life, for his life. He doesn't have friends, family. His, his wife is separated from him. And he lives like that in caves and in the desert for 14 years. 14 years. Well, he's changed life, radically changed. eh? So from age about 16, the the theologians say from about 16 till about 30, that's how David lived, on the run, all the time. And so our first portion we're going to read, 1 Samuel 24. We read this portion, and David is hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi, and Saul comes after David with 3,000 of Israel's finest soldiers. He's coming to get him. He's, coming to, he's going to wipe him out. 
Can you imagine in that place what's going through David's mind? The leader that he's serving is the very man that's trying, is hell-bent on killing him. He's determined to end his life. Now, if you read the scripture, it says, it says that the devil didn't put David under Saul. It says God put David under Saul. So there's a scene when they're in the cave in Engedi, and Saul and his men come in, and there's a pool, and either they'd come to get water, or they'd come to relieve themselves, or whatever they did in caves, and they'd taken all their armor off, either to bath or do whatever they needed to do, so they're completely unarmed. And it says in the back of the cave, in the darkness, they're hiding, David hides with all his men. And David is encouraged by his, 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 his men. He said, God has handed Saul to you right now. He's unarmed. Let's just end this thing right now. He's come to kill you. It's the appropriate response for you just to... Let's just end it now. Let's just take him out. I think perhaps David... God is already working his heart. He's thinking differently. You know, that, you know how the story ends. But what David's thinking... must have been thinking. Someone's planted something in Saul's heart that he thinks, I I want his kingdom. Maybe he'd heard about the prophetic word, I don't know, but the seed has been planted that he's trying to take his his kingdom from Saul. And for all of us, I don't know about your life, but I've I've been serving in churches now for over 20 years. From when I was in my early 20s, I'm now 45. So about 20, 25 years. I've been full-time in the church now for 18 years. During that period of time, there are those that you find easy to follow and there's those that you find difficult to follow. Some seem to be gentle and nurturing. Other leaders seem to be more dogmatic, harsher. But I believe God uses both. He does. And that's for me is the power of the story. I don't think God ever makes a leader bad, but he still can place us under people in, in, in authority in our lives who still are undergoing themselves personality transformation. And that might be difficult for us at the time. And I can, I can think of a number of examples in my life with the things grated me, but actually God was using that process in my life to also refine me. It's an amazing thing. God uses those that nurture us. God uses those that challenge us. And he's, he, he anoints both and ordains both. So we see here, I mean, David is under this relationship with Saul, which is unbelievable. The guy's not only giving him a hard time, he's physically trying to kill him. I don't know, I've never been in a church where the leaders physically trying to kill anyone. Has, has anyone of you? No. David doesn't take the opportunity to harm Saul. And he proves by his actions that there's nothing in his heart wanting to take Saul's kingdom or his ministry. He simply cuts off the corner of his robe while he's in the cave. And then it says he goes a great distance from the cave and when Saul comes out, he, he speaks to him in a loud voice. He cries to him in a loud, loud voice, My father, my father. It's amazing. This man's trying to kill him. He says, My father. It's like so he's saying, in his heart he's saying, I want to be your son. But you, you don't want to be my father. And so I'm going to read from the English Standard Version from about verse 5. I don't know if you want to follow in your translation. It says, Afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Isn't that amazing that even when he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, his heart is so tender before God, his heart is so wanting to do the right thing, that it's like he comes under conviction that he's even done that to Saul. So he says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, 
to put my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward David also rose and went out of the cave and he called after Saul, My Lord and King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his earth to the face, face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks harm, your harm. Behold, this day in your eyes you have now seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against the Lord, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, again those words, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So powerful. It is so powerful. David's clearly showing there's no rebellion in his heart, there's nothing in him that wants to destroy Saul. Saul responds and says, David, you're more righteous than I am, and he leaves. And at that point, David must have thought, yes, thank you, Lord, you've delivered me. This is wonderful. Thank you, God. But just two chapters later, 1 Samuel 26, he's now hiding in the hill country of Hilkiah, and Saul once again comes with 3,000 men. There's still something in his heart. It's an interesting story because it says, the story says that God put the whole army, all 3,000 men, into a deep sleep that came from him. <laughs> That's amazing. He puts the whole army into a deep sleep. They are all sleeping so deeply. It says it comes from the Lord, the sleep, and it's so deep that David is able to go right into the center of the camp because the, the king would sleep in the center and he's able to find Saul. And he takes with him a young, bloodthirsty man called Abishai. He's Joash's brother and they were not very nice guys. You'll see if you read the story. They like killing people, right? So that's, that's the kind of irony because God puts him together with Abishai and they go, they go to uh, right through uh, where, he, where uh, uh, Saul is asleep with Ab Abner and Abishai just takes the spear and he says, I'm ready. David, just give the word, I'm gonna, I'll kill Saul for you. No problem. Take his life. I'll run him twice through, I think it says. And David does nothing. Everyone is sleeping. No, no opportunity for him to get caught. He's ready. Abishai is there. It's interesting also that by this point, Saul has become a murderer. You remember this narrative, the story, that uh, there was a city called Nob, and David went there with his men to try and find some food. He was starving, went there, and they went to the priests of Nob, and the, the priest gave him the, the, the priestly bread and gave him Goliath's sword. And when Saul heard about that, he went back to the city, and it says he murdered the 85 priests in cold blood, and he murdered their wives, and he murdered their children, even the youngest. That's, that's what had happened in Saul's heart. That's how, that's how a, kind of demonically oppressed he was. He murders the priests, he murders the kids, he murders the wives, and he says he puts the whole town to the sword. God only told the Israelites to do that to people like the Amalekites, who were pagans, and he wanted them to keep themselves pure from the Canaanites. 
Amazing, the very thing God had commanded the armies of Israel to do to the enemies, Saul does to the very people of God. He wipes out the town. But by this time, David knows this man, he's not only killing, he's hell-bent on killing me, he's destroying the nation of Israel. So I don't know about you, but I've never known a leader like that in any church, have you? <laughs> anyone know anyone who's murdered someone and who's leading people? Uh, well, maybe, I don't know of anyone offhand, but 85 priests, I mean, this guy's like, if it was happened today, he would be in the court of law for ethnic cleansing or something like that, war crimes. And this is the man that God has put in, in David's life. It's absolutely incredible. But we know he responds in exactly the same way. Abishai is ready to strike. He says, David says, no, do not touch him. Well, I don't know about you, but I, when I read this, it is absolutely, it just fills me with a sense of, of wonder that someone could respond like that. It's, it, it fills me with a sense of, of amazement that David could so have that in his heart that he wouldn't respond. It's absolutely incredible. So if you want to read with me 1 Samuel 26 verse 8, and we're going to finish in a couple of minutes. David, Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Again, he says the same thing. He says, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. He says, I'll make a clean job of it. I'll just, one, that's it. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. It's like he's prophesying. He doesn't even know that he's prophesying, but he is. The Lord will bid that I should put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is by his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did anyone awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. It's amazing, eh? Again, David shows his innocence. Abishai, I don't think he really understood, but he goes with it because David is so convinced. The question for me, though, is, well, why did God put the army into deep sleep? If it wasn't to deliver Saul into David's hands, if it wasn't to expose Saul, if it wasn't so that people could get revenge on him, why did God allow the whole army to fall into deep sleep? Well, I think this. Ultimately, it was the ultimate test for David. It's the ultimate test for David. To see, I think God was trying to see if he would be another leader like Saul or he, if he would remain a man after God's heart. Because Saul... The difference between, there was a fine line before, between Saul and David and all that separated them as leaders was that David constantly waited on God to hear his heart and see what he wanted to do. And if you read Saul's story, he, he always took matters into his own hands and he tried to make a plan. And that's the thing that tripped him up his whole life. So he tried to protect his kingdom. He tried to stand against anyone he thought was going to rise up against him. And it's interesting, when Absalom, David's son, rises up to take his kingdom. What is David's response? He leaves Jerusalem. He says, this kingdom was given to me by God. If he wants to take it away, that's fine. I'm more interested in God. 
Isn't that incredible? He does exactly the opposite of what Saul did. His heart is still, Lord, you've given me this kingdom. If you want to take it away, it's all right with me, but I will serve you. That is incredible. Two kinds of ministers in the church, those that love their ministry, those that love God. Those that love their ministry will do all that they can to protect all that they have. Those that love God are secure because they know ultimately God gives and God can take away. That's all God's anyway. The irony, well not the irony, but the end of the story is that soon after this event, God does judge Saul and he uses the Philistines to do it and you know that he's, he's killed in battle. And the news comes to David and even in the telling of the news, David doesn't respond with, oh that's great, 14 years of my life, I can now come to an end of all this hiding, it's wonderful, he's dead, let's get on with it. He's the man that's ruined my life for the last 14 years. That would be the response of an offended man. What does he do? You go and read the story in Psalms. He writes and he teaches all the, the, the men that follow him. He teaches this, lo- this love song of Saul. He says, Saul, you were the most beautiful man amongst men. And there's a song of love that he sings over this man that tried to kill him for 14 years. <laughs> I can't get my head around that. That is... Absolutely incredible. And he refuses anyone to allow, speak ill of Saul. The guy that comes to tell him that Saul's dead is trying to score points with him. He says, okay, well now this is going to be the new king. I'm, and and uh, he tells a story. He lies. David says, what happened on the battlefield? He said, well, Saul was lying there. He was, he, was, he was wounded. And he begged me to kill him and put his life to an end because he was in such pain. So I took his sword and I killed him. And he's, he's expecting that David's going to say, well done, good man. What does David do? Exactly the opposite. He says, how dare you? Raise your hand against God's anointed and he executes him. <laughs> I don't get it. And then what does he do? He goes to find every, any one of Saul's relatives that is left so he can bless them. And he finds Mephibosheth, who's lame. And he blesses him and he brings him into the royal palace and he says, you will eat at my table. That is not the action of an offended man who's had every reason under the sun to be offended by this guy that's been his leader, his father, and has disappointed him deeply. I find it absolutely incredible. I think David must have known deep in his heart that those 14 years that he'd been running from Saul was God's training ground for him. God's training ground because ultimately he would be a shepherd for the people of Israel after God's heart. And God was taking him through this process. Interesting that when you read the story of Saul at the beginning, it says that when Saul was chosen, he was a head taller than everyone else. He was handsome. He was the obvious choice. And he was young. And what is the tragedy? He had never been through the tests that David went through. And because he'd never been through the tests that David went through, when it came to the crunch, his character failed him. Again and again. And that's the only difference between David and Saul. One, a man after God's heart. The other, not so. So what has this got to do with us? Well, I want to just say that for all of us, God's placed dreams in our hearts, dreams of a future, dreams of a hope, dreams of things that he wants to give us. And along the way, we're going to find adversity. Along the way, we're going to find things that challenge that reality that God has spoken over our lives. And I think, for me, part of this last year, personally, has been a time of refining in my own life. Sometimes God does lead you into the desert. 
Sometimes God does lead you onto the mountaintop. Sometimes God leads you in this process and it's kind of a roundabout, windy way and you say, Lord, it would be easier just to go from here to there. But it seems like we're going like this to get there. Eventually you do get there. But why? Because he's determined that he wants to pour his blessing into our lives. He's determined that he wants us to be able to shoulder what he wants to give us. And so he's determined that we will become ultimately more and more like Jesus. So he allows things to come into our lives. I think all that we have to walk through. How many of you have had to trust God for jobs this year? Yeah, it's a lot of us. Financial provision. How many of you are trusting still for uh, relatives to get saved? I mean, Martin gave it just to me on Sunday, but there's loads of us still waiting, still longing, still praying. How many of you would like to see more miracles in your life? When you pray, see people. I mean, all of us have these things saying, God, we want so much more. But this, I believe, how we respond in these kind of situations, not that it's all about us, but our, our, our heart motive can either lead us in a stepping stone towards the glory of what, that God has for us if we respond without offense and we respond in obedience to God every step of the way. He can release blessing. You know, I always joke because I started losing my hair when I was 18 or 19 and that scripture has always tickled me, even the hairs on your head are numbered. And I always think, well, God, that's very funny because actually you must be good at sub- subtraction as well then. But, but if God knows the hairs of the head and they are numbered, he knows everything that you've been through in your life. He knows every challenge you've had. He knows every person in the church that's offended or hurt you, whatever. And nothing that has happened to you has gone on outside of God's attention. That's an amazing thought. Everything that happens is not outside of his attention. I'm preaching to myself here. God knows. He knows absolutely. He allows things so that we have opportunity to either put our trust in him or to put our trust in ourselves. And that's the challenge. How we handle that is either going to help us grow, move us into the future and destiny that God has for us, or else we're going to shrink back and become more bitter, more distracted, more defiled, more on the outside, more on the periphery, as bitterness begins to seep into us. But I believe Hebrews 11, they are great heroes of the faith. They are, they are cheering you and I on. Why? Because they, they have the benefit of hindsight. They know what's beyond what we are going through right now. They have persevered through, and some of them didn't even receive what God had promised, but the scripture says, God bless that anyway. And maybe they're cheering us on because they can see what is ahead. And if we can just respond with hearts that are open and say, Lord Jesus, I want to embrace all that you have for me. Change me. I'm happy that you are the potter. I'm the clay. If you want to break the vessel again, that's fine. And I know when we are are, uh, in the midst of those kind of circumstances and we have to work through disappointment or feeling like we've been misunderstood or whatever, it's a painful thing. It can be a hurtful thing. It can be a whole lot of questions. You can begin to say, God, why, why, why? But when we look back, I think we can begin to treasure those things as some of the most key moments in our lives, stepping stones that God has used to move us upwards and forward in his purpose for our lives. Amen? I simply want to encourage you with that tonight as we look forward. And I, I think it's inev- inevitable whenever you're about to go on holiday, you always try, in my mind, I always review the last period of time. And we're about to go on holiday on Sunday after the meeting. And it's inevitable that you look back on the year and say, well, Lord, 
what has been good, what could have been done better, what do I need to learn so when we get back in the new year, and it is the new year in September, because it is the school new year, when we get back in the new year, what do we need to embrace differently, focus on differently, so that the next 12 months can be radically different from the last 12 months? That's, that's my encouragement to you. And it's always upward in God. It's always more. It's always higher. It's always deeper. It's always more for us as a congregation. I trust that it really does encourage you tonight. God has our best interest at heart always and he's prepared to let some things happen that we learn to put our trust completely. All our eggs in his basket, not in ours. Amen? I'm going to just